It's one of the great things I love in my job is when someone comes along and they say, gosh, I didn't know Picasso made jewellery. And you're like, yeah, well, you know, there's a lot of artists who made jewellery and, and many, many people don't know about it. And it's it's really interesting. It's, it's fascinating from an art point of view and from a jewellery point of view. Um, and it's also, you know, I, I just feel like not enough people know about this. Jewelry is just another form of expression for, for an artist. It's the effect it has on people. And I, I can't believe that artists, when they do artist jewelry, they do not think about uh, the effect they will have on people. Welcome to If Jewels Could Talk. I'm Carol Walton, the voice of jewelry, an author, broadcaster, and the woman who initiated the role of jewelry editor at magazines like Tatler and British Vogue. This is a podcast for everyone, for people who do like jewellery, for people who don't realise they like jewellery, and anyone intrigued by fascinating facts, new ideas, and forgotten histories. So please join me as I tell sparkly tales, meeting all sorts of people, delving into four centuries of jewellery culture, and investigate what's happening now. Artists and sculptors have often explored different mediums, endowed with new expressive potential, and arguably the most intimate form of this work is a small piece of jewellery. In 1961, the French writer Eveline Schlumberger wrote, We talk about jewels, we talk about them, but Picasso refuses to talk about them. He has locked up his jewellery work behind the thick walls of his chateau in Vauvenarg, and locked himself in a silence laden with mystery. It's a little-known but essential part of Picasso's work. And today, we're going to talk about wearable miniature artworks, and in particular, those being exhibited in the exhibition Picasso and Artist's Jewelry at the Museo Picasso in Barcelona, Spain. I'm delighted that we're joined by the curator of this exhibition, Manon Le Caplain, and the London-based gallery owner, Louisa Guinness, author of Art as Jewellery, Calder to Capor. Manon, thank you so much for joining us today to tell us about the exhibition, Picasso and Artist's Jewellery. Welcome. Thank you. Hello, and thank you so much for having me here. And thank you, Louisa, um, for joining us in London. Thank you very much, Carol. Thanks for inviting me to do this as well. Well, firstly, I wanted, Louisa, can you kick off by telling us the description? What is artist's jewellery and what defines it? And why does it differ from pieces of jewellery designed by jewellery designers? Gosh, uh, what a huge question, <laughs> but um, a great way to start. A question that I'm often asked, actually. Um, uh, in my world, artist's jewellery is jewellery that is made by people who are mainly painters and sculptors. They're not, they're, their number one profession is not to be a jeweller. In the bigger, grander scheme and the larger world of jewellery, of course, there are m lots of wonderful, wonderful artists and their main um, uh, vocation is to make jewellery and so they're artists in their own right but for the purposes I think of what we're here for we're talking about people who are mainly painters and sculptors and their, their main thing is, is not really jewellery um, so people like Picasso and 
Calder and Max Ernst and all those wonderful names that we know going back right through to today. And of course, it's not just the contemporary artists who've turned their hand to jewels. This is um, historically something that's always happened. In Renaissance Florence, learning goldsmithing was part of an artist's training, wasn't it? Yes, it was. It was um, it was part of kind of what you did when you went to art college in, in that sort of day. And you can see it. Um, people made beautiful pieces of jewellery, but it was also um, transposed into the paintings that we see. Um, and you can trace it right back to, to the beginning. But it's it's only more recently, I think, in the last 100, 150 years that the artists have started to take it more um, well, I dare I say, but more sort of seriously um, and really dig into it and try to produce things as, a, as an extension of their work. And so it's, it's sort of seen as another way of, of expressing themselves, not just through their paintings and, and, and other traditional methods. So they have the same parameters, really, as a jewellery designer in that it's something small and portable and created around the body for, to be worn on the body. Yeah, I think they do, but there's a very, very big difference from the traditional jewellery designers. And number one is, um, I think a jewellery designer starts with a sort of premise that they either have a gemstone or they want to create something that kind of people really love to wear that makes them feel more beautiful and makes them feel better. Um, and an artist may not have either of those things. They may start with a concept and to be honest, quite often, I think they're not particularly interested in how it really looks and, and how it makes someone feel, um, or not in such a, a way as, as, a, as, a, as a traditional jewellery designer will be. And the second thing is, is usually sort of production. A traditional jewellery maker will be, they'll be kind of slightly dictated by production costs and um, production constraints and whether they're going to make one piece or two pieces or what have you. An artist uh, doesn't take any of that into consideration at all, and believe me, I know. Um, they, uh, they, they, they kind of have... I like to give them a very free reign because that's the, heart, uh, the whole point of it. But I think the difference is that because the artists um, are really just doing what they feel like doing, it comes really from their heart and they're trying to perhaps give a message or say something. It's, it's not necessarily just about the beauty of the piece. Um, so I think those are those are that, those are two kind of quite different um, places from which they come, and 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 therefore uh, there, there's room for both. Actually, I think there's you know they're both kind of interesting to balance off each other. And do you think any artist can set their sights on creating jewellery? Because I know you've worked with people as diverse as Israeli-born architectural designer Ron Arad, Irish-born conceptual artist Michael Craig Martin, or does the artist need an interest in jewellery? I think they have to have a little interest in jewellery. Um, I've worked with... I worked with Ed Ruscha, for example, and when I first approached him, he was not really interested in jewellery. Um, but he rang me back six months later and said, well, you actually tickled my mind and now I am interested and let's try and do this. So I think it helps. It also helps if they've worked in three dimensions in some sort of form because they understand and they can make probably better jewellery just because they're, it's just not that easy to suddenly turn your hand to doing something that other people have been struggling to, to do for 20, 30, 40, 50 years all their life. You know, you can't just suddenly say, right, I'm going to make jewellery. Um, so 
there's a, a lot of things that go into it. There's the person who's involved with making it, and many times it's it's me or somebody else, another collaborator, and then there's the goldsmith. Um, and so, yeah, it, it definitely helps if they've got a sort of mind that will understand how the thing will will be finished or how they, how it will how they can conceive the the finished product. But uh, often it's a sort of journey, and it can it can change and move and change directions as we go along. Um, but it's actually not as easy as many people may think. <laughs> so Manon, you've curated this exhibition of Picasso and other artists' jewels. How many pieces do you have in the exhibition? Yes, I created this exhibition with Emmanuel Guigon, which is the, who is the director of the museum, mm-hmm. and we have uh, eighty-six uh, Picasso's jewels. Um, in this exhibition. 86. So was that difficult to find them? Was it difficult to get people to lend them for the exhibition? Yes, actually, it was difficult to find them and to have them too, because these are personal pieces. These are intimate pieces and they're often, they're not in public collections for the most part and they're in private hands and Therefore, it's a bit difficult to to manage to have them sometime. And actually, the um, COVID made the task a little bit more difficult. A bit more difficult and complicated. Yeah. But when you were curating these and amassing, as well as Picasso's and lots of other artists' jewelers' work, do you consider the pieces are miniature artworks or do you see them as miniatures of an artwork? I think they are miniature artworks them th- themselves. Yes. And there is no doubt about, it, about this. So not necessarily relating to the art that they were cu- creating at the time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Of course they are. They, they are in the case of Picasso, which is the case I know, I know most. The pieces he creates in jewellery are linked to the big pieces he creates at the same time. They are the same themes, the same materials, the same... It, it's all linked, but... Jewels are works of art in themselves, yeah. so. just just smaller. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Carol, I would, I would, I would completely agree with that. And I think that most of the artists who who have made jewelry since and and now today um, would also agree with that. They sort of see them as a as another part of their work. Um, it's like you make paintings, you make sculpture, you make photographs, you make jewelry. Um, and some are extremely good at it. And I would also agree completely with what Manon says, is that they, the good ones are the ones that linked to their work and what they're doing. I think if they sort of just suddenly take something randomly out of the blue and say, oh, I want to make this piece of jewellery, mm-hmm. well, anyone can do that. That's, that, that. that's not really what it's about. Yeah, it's just jewellery is just another form of expression for, for an artist. And it's just another art form of expression. There is uh, also uh, this thing that Nikit Sanfal said. Uh, she said that, and I have to take back my notes. She said that um, jewels were like uh, porte bonheur um, talismans that protected her, and that she liked the effect uh, they had on her and on the other person and on the op- on the other people. And I think this is. Um, a really good way to describe 
an artist's jewelry. It affects the person wearing and the person viewing the jewel. Yeah, it's the effect it has on people. And I, I can't believe that artists, when they do artist jewelry, they do not think about uh, the effect they will have on people. So can you tell me one of the jewels that really relates to one of Picasso's quite well-known artworks that you have in the exhibition? Well, the first ones I'm thinking about are the Madura editions, the editions made by the by the um, Suzanne and George Ramier, uh, who had the poetry studio in, in Valoris in the south of France. And for example, the the drawings, the the the, the themes of these jewels were uh, phones and 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 birds and and oh my god, how do you say that in English? Uh, the bulls. Yeah, bulls. Yeah, toro. Yeah, bulls. These are really the same themes that Picasso is exploring in his 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 paintings at the time. And for example, uh, another jewel is the large necklace, uh, old, the old necklace he made with Françoise Gillot. Uh, there is an owl on, on this necklace and in the same period he's doing uh, sculptures of owls in bronze. So Actually, you, you, you said, Carol, you were going to talk about, you know, what's your favourite piece? That is my favourite piece from the exhibition. I think it's... Uh... It's a really gorgeous piece. It's it's uh, it's sort of it's made from uh, uh, bone and and some stone that he's just picked up, and he's just drawn a few simple lines and made it into an, an owl. Uh, and he was very, as Manon says, he was very much doing owls at that time, wasn't he? It's also my favorite piece. Is actually. it? Oh my word! <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's also my favorite piece. It's just it's it was made with four hands because it was made by François Gillot and by. Pablo Picasso at the time and I think it's it's just a beautiful collective artwork. And it's also in that absolutely fabulous photograph which is one of my favourite photographs by Robert um, Kappa with the picture of them walking on the beach with the umbrella. Oh yes. And she's wearing it in that. And so you have quite a lot of the um, drawings and portraits that go along to show some of these pieces don't you? that he created, or they're worn on people? Yeah, um, most part of the drawings and the engravings are not um, with jewels made, but with other jewels, but yeah, he represents them all the time. It's just like, it's a continuous line in, in, his, in his artwork. There are jewels at the beginning of his life, at the middle of his life, at the end of his life. There are jewels. Do you know? Did he ever buy jewelry? Did you do you know that, or did he just only make it? No, actually, he, at the beginning, he bought jewelry. For example, he bought uh, earrings, large gold ring earrings for Fernand Olivier at the beginning of the twentieth century, and then he bought jewels for Olga Kotlova, uh, his first wife. Um, actually, there are even jewels he bought, and then he modified. As for the jewels he, he, he offered to Dora Mar uh, in the 30s, there are jewels he bought in the Marché des Puces, in some markets, and and it just uh, engraved something in it or, or drew something in it, and it was... But it, it were jewels that he bought in the first place. He was always sort of modifying. It was a bit like the stones and the pebbles that he used to spend hours collecting on the beach and I think it was it became a sort of family tradition didn't it and uh, because of his incredible draftsmanship he could literally just 
use one line of a pen or a, or a, or a, a sharp object to, to engrave it and make something absolutely just totally Picasso and him. And that was nice to see um, in the exhibition. And then also some of the terracotta things, they were, they were um, which I think he, he, he made later on. Um, and again, he engraved and, and, and just carved out shapes and, and drawings and lines, didn't he? Yeah. I like the way in the catalogue you refer to that, the way he kind of marked pebbles, as it's, you talk about the border being permeable with only a single step between the found object and an engraved jewel. And I think that summed it up very well, that it's something very simple, but it is that step that takes it from a found object into a piece of jewellery. And um, that you said he often threw those back into the sea and he imagined who would find them in the future and what a conundrum that would make for archaeologists who found them. (laughs) Yeah. Actually, I did not think he really... um put them back in the sea. It was just some kind of, of, of dream, of, of some kind of uh, thought of him. Like, And I think it was linked to his humour, to to how he, he, he liked to, to just make fun of, of people around him. And, and he, he compared this to, to a dake, to archaeologists, if they were to be found. In the seat. What would they think they were? Yeah. But actually, I've, I've interviewed Paloma Picasso quite a few times um, in my role at Vogue, and, and he certainly left a legacy for her. And she talks about walking on the beach, collecting pebbles, and she still does that. And um, in my latest book, The New Stone Age, I quote her saying, on holiday, I'll swim um, to shore from a sailboat and collect pebbles, and I have to carry them back in my swimsuit. I weigh much more on the way back. So she describes this swimming with this weighted down with all these pebbles because it's what she does and what she, um, she learnt doing with her father on the beach in the south of France. And, of course, so many of the jewels really were made for people he loved, weren't they? They were for acquaintances, for friends, for family. Yeah, most of them were for people around him. For example, uh, when he was on the beach catching and, and just um, picking, up, picking, picking up these pebbles, these bones, these, I don't know what, uh, everything he, he, could found, he could find, uh, it was meant to, to be to be given to people around him, to Nouchelouar, um, which happened to, to, to pass the summers with him in the south of France, with Lee Miller, the photographer, with everyone around him, with his two children. So they were very much um, sort of um, tokens of devotion and admiration. Um, would, he, would he fashion them to suit that person or they were just a gift he decided to give? Well, for example, in the case of the jewels he made with his dentist in gold and, 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 and plate and that he offered to Françoise Gillot, uh, there were jewels he wanted her to, to wear. And if she did not, and if she uh, said she wouldn't like them, it, it, was, it was a bit mad. So, yeah, I think he hopes them to be, to be worn. So an obligation in accepting the gift was you would wear it. <laughs> yeah, actually, in Vivre avec Picasso, François Gillot tells a lot 
about these stories of jewels, and, and it's quite interesting to know. There's a great story about, um, I think it was Dora Ma, that there was, there was a ring that was auctioned at, at Sotheby's um, about four or five years ago, it went for a fortune. But it was a little portrait of Dora Maher, and I think it was given to her um, because there was a story they had a. She persuaded him to buy her a, a traditional, uh, I think it was a, a ruby ring or something, and uh, to swap it for a painting. And he was furious that she should actually want to give away one of his paintings. And they had a huge row, and so she threw the, the ring into the river. And uh, he, and then of course she was absolutely furious with herself later on because she didn't have the she didn't have the ring and so they they uh, cleared out the canal I think it was a canal actually, and tried to find it they couldn't find it anywhere and she was so upset that he painted her a little a little portrait and put it inside this sort of Victorian setting, which became the ring and the portrait of her and and was famously sold for I think over half a million pounds or something the other day. Yeah. And jewels often meant something in his relationship. We have also the story that François Gillot um, tells. Uh, when she left him and she just uh, came back at the Atelier des Grands Augustins, I think, um, he was mad, he was furious, and he just uh, threw uh, to her a watch she offered him, and he just said, your time is not mine anymore. And... The watch was like the object linked to the fight. To he just uh, he used this object to to represent the the the, the clash, his anger at what had happened. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And in fact, again, Paloma Picasso said that one of her favorite pieces was a piece made by her father for her mother. It's a sun. It's a big round plate of gold, thin, that was hand hammered by him with a little face in the center and it's the portrait of her mother that he gave to her mother and Francois Gillot gave it to Paloma and she loved it because she said it's a result of the love I come from it's like the cosmos where we come from the light the sun so it's very important to me and jewelry is eternal and I guess that's what he was making he was um making things for people to keep as an object, as you say, of emotion. But why was he so secret in his lifetime, Manon, do you think, that he made jewellery? Why do you think he kept it so private? Actually, this is a difficult question to answer, and we should ask to him, but we can't. <laughs> so, um, I, I really don't know. There are several explanations, but none of them really satisfies me. So I... Maybe because it was so personal. Yeah, this is one of the explanations I, I thought about. And he had sometimes more than one relationship going on at a yeah. time? <laughs> also. <laughs> so that had to be kept quiet. Yeah. How many pieces he was actually making. Mm. Yeah, exactly. So if they all came out, then people might discover a whole lot of history. Yeah. Uh, but it's true. And then he was eventually persuaded, wasn't he, to, to, to show his works some of his jewelry wasn't it but then yeah some of them but he refused for th for some of them for example there is a huge necklace gold necklace uh he made for for paul de Lazerne, uh gold with bulls with head bulls and this jewel uh paul de Lazerne wanted it to be exhibited uh in 61 i think if i remember well and it just uh it just didn't happen, and it may have been because Picasso refused to show it. 
Maybe also he feared that um, if these became known, they became to have a store of value of people sold them, he wouldn't want that to happen. They were gifts, and I understand later on in his... He used to give people lots of gifts of drawings and, and artworks as well, and apparently later on in his life, he started giving caviar because he said it was cheaper, <laughs> cheaper than, than his, the value of his art that he might give away. So maybe there was something in that as well. Yeah, the art market was another reason I was thinking about when, when we prepared this exhibition and also because um, there are counterfeits of his work of art and counterfeits of, of tools often more uh, easier to do than paintings, for example. So it may have been another reason, market of art, I, I don't know. And how do you tell it's, it's not a counterfeit? Were they all catalogued somewhere originally? No, no, they're not catalogued. And actually for a researcher, the first uh, proof and the proof that we prefer is a first-hand proof, like something written down by his friend, by his biograph that have known him something, uh, or visual proofs like photographs, for example. And when we don't have these elements, we just try to to understand where it comes from. And for example, in the case of uh, the Madura editions that have been translated into gold, uh, a lot of them have been translated into gold in the US when Picasso was alive. And at the back of it, we don't have a signature firm by Picasso, but we have Empreinte Originale Madura, like a stamp. And these wounds were counterfeit. And actually, uh, with the works of art and with the jewels, with the, in gold and in plate, uh, the quality of the gold may be uh, a proof I see. of the authenticity of the work. I think, Louisa, also I'm wondering, is it quite beguiling for artists to want to make these miniature works? Because I think for some artists, uh, it might be um, a sort of quicker realisation of their work and that might be attractive in some way to them. Oh, gosh, no, I think the opposite. <laughs> Do you think so? Yeah, because it's so much more complicated to make jewellery. Um, it's, it's in a different material than they're used to. Um, and if, they're, if it's Picasso and he's used to making you know, uh, something on a canvas, then he knows how to do that. But to suddenly have to produce things in a precious metal or even a non-precious metal or in a form that you're not used to, that's, that's quite a lot more difficult. Um, but it depends on what you're saying, because, I mean, if you're picking up a stone off the beach and then um, just fashioning some lines and, and making something amazing out of it, then that's, that's one thing. But if you're actually making a complicated piece of jewellery, which is sort of, um, you know, well thought out in advance and you've got drawings and you, you know where you want to end up, then that's another very different thing. And, and, and as we all know, making jewellery is, is, is um, quite difficult and quite time-consuming and quite expensive as well. I remember talking to Frank Geary at the time that he made some pieces of jewellery, and for him that was, that was um, something very attractive because obviously his projects as an architect could take eight to ten years to realise, and he, he was very attracted by by making small objects. Oh yeah, well that I can <laughs> I I can totally see that in that scale. But uh, um, versus, I, I'm not sure that uh, certainly most of the pieces of of uh, art, most of the artists that I work with 
take longer. But saying that, someone like Calder, who was famous for going to spend the night in somebody's house and you wake up in the morning and your knives and forks drawer had been tra- transformed into a beautiful silver necklace because um, uh, he would go down in the night and sort of hammer things out, hammer out people's initials and make them into a little brooch for you. Um, and that would be done very quickly. And his, his sculptures would take you ages to make, as, 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 as you say, they're kind of large scale and, you know, they'd have to go through a, a foundry and, and what have you. Um, although some of the smaller ones obviously wouldn't, but the big ones would. So, yeah, maybe, but I, I don't think that would be a reason to, for artists to make to make jewellery. I think really the reason why they'd make it is because they want to and they're intrigued by it and it's got a message. And lots of people just love the idea of of making something you can wear um, and and you can look at and you have a little sculpture when you're not wearing it. It sort of still looks beautiful. Well, it's interesting you brought up Calder, you know, for people listening, Alexander Calder, the American sculptor known for his whimsical mobiles and monumental sculptures. And he um, really upended centuries of notions that sculpture should be static by and grounded by making these these, these mobiles. Yeah. Um, and then his jewellery is sort of hammered flat metal spirals out of brass, silver and gold wire. But famously, they were quite uncomfortable to wear. Well, yes and no. Some were. Some were really sculptures that you wore like they were completely impractical you could never put a coat over it they were 15 centimeters up over your shoulders and and they would have sort of articulated bits of spirals of silver or brass or bronze or whatever not bronze brass usually he worked in um articulating and 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 and, uh, and moving and, and and not perhaps the most comfortable to wear but if you're wearing a sculpture by alexander calder you don't really care how comfortable it is well, honestly no. <laughs> but i don't think those notions of comfort or practicality come into artist's jewelry do they no as i was saying it right at the beginning it's not the most foremost you know thing in an artist's mind and in fact that's kind of where I get involved, if I'm collaborating with the artists, I try, try to get them to make it comfortable and practical and not sort of stick out and not painful. And and sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't. <laughs> um, but Calder was, was, a, was, to me, was the grandfather of the artist jewellery world. And he made everything by hand himself. He was never trained to be a jeweller. He didn't ever use solder. It was... Um, it was always sort of twisted wire and in fact that's one of the ways that you know if you see um, a fake calder is that someone's used some sort of solder or or um, kind of proper jewellery materials because he used he made his own pins he made his fastenings and uh, he just did it because he was a sculptor and he always had a, a pair of pliers in his hands and some wire and, and that's how he loved he just loved to do it and and, and um no, he, that's why I think he was the, the greatest of them, of, of them all. I've just been in Venice, actually, and went again to see the bedhead that he made for Peggy Guggenheim. Yeah. Um, and again, you know, there's no way you could lie back on that in comfort at all. But it's just so magnificent. It's absolutely fantastic, isn't it? And of course, so many um, avant-garde women like Peggy Guggenheim, Georgia O'Keeffe, Simone de Beauvoir, wore his pieces. It was like... You know, again, I'm sort of thinking of how you how you wear artist jewelry. That 
it it takes quite an avant-garde sensibility to wear them, doesn't it? Yeah, I think so. I mean, um, did you see the earrings that he made for Peggy Guggenheim beside the yes. bedhead, and yes. and also the Jean Tangley? And so when she opened her ex- her her gallery in America, and it's coming from my brain, I think it's 1929, it's called Art of the Century, she couldn't decide what earrings to wear, so she famously wore one of each. She wore a tangly on one side and a calder on the other, uh, which, uh, which just shows, you know, you, it, it's, you're quite bold to wear the calder jewellery anyway, but to wear both and, and separately and differently, then I think people who wear it just wear it because they love it. I remember when you very first opened your gallery um, in London, Louisa, and I think I wrote one of the first stories about some of the artists you were working with and photographed um, something by Anthony Gormley, which was some big, heavy blocks of steel. And I thought, my gosh, the woman who buys these... It, she can't ever wear them with a white blouse, for instance. No. It was always going yeah. to, to mark her white blouse. But actually, that's a very good example. So when we were making, he was making those, I went to his studio and I said, you know, what happens if someone's wearing this on a bare neck and it pinches because they were very sharp edged and they were quite heavy. And if you moved, you could imagine that the little steel square edges would pinch your neck. So... Um, Anthony didn't like it terribly much because it wasn't kind of how he'd planned it. But we decided to put some rubber little sort of spaces in between, which worked really well, actually, and made it quite comfortable. But it, it, it was a compromise because I just said, you know, you, you, as you say, it, it, it's going to be too uncomfortable. And I remember he said when I interviewed him, it'll look even more beautiful as it rusts. Yeah. And I was thinking of all this rust coming over somebody's outfit as they got ready. Yeah. But tell me, Manon, in the exhibition, you've got such a range of materials that these artists have used. Can you give us, uh, I mean, you've got tortoiseshell, feathers, um, you have fur, don't you? Yeah, actually, we have the chance to exhibit the fur bracelets by Meret Oppenheim, uh, which is probably one of my favorite surrealist artists. And it was uh, a bracelet, it was this bracelet that we exhibit that um, gave birth to probably her iconic uh, work of art, uh, which is uh, the fur cup kept in in the MoMA in New York. And it, it's it's a beautiful piece of, of of art, it's it's wonderful. So we have fur, we have uh, gold, we have uh, brass, we have stone, bone. Uh, what do we have? Seashells, fabric. Seashells, yeah, seashells. But Breton, yeah. So anything can be a precious, become a a precious object, any material. That's another thing about artist jewelry is I think they don't mind what they make things out of. Um, I know it's become more kind of fashionable now for contemporary jewellers to use any material. But I think going back in the 30s and 40s when um, some of these artists were making things, it was not in fashion. People didn't want things particularly made out of brass or silver or things. And um, they don't really care about what the material is made out of. It's what you make, not what it's made out of. And when it's made, as you said, the sort of fabrication that is the challenge um, for artists. I mean, I think Picasso began um, using wax from his dentist, didn't he, Manon? Yeah, well, around um, 
1950. Uh, he met uh, his dentist in Valoris, in the in the south of France, Roger Chataignet. And uh, at the time, the wax casting was um, a really advanced technique in dentistry. And so he began with his dentist to on Wednesday afternoons uh, to do pieces of jewelry uh, with him. And these pieces of wax uh, were later on cast in gold or in, sil or in silver. And we have three of them in the exhibition. Uh, a son, a satyr, and uh, a dove, like, it's a woman dove. And Louise, when you've been working with any artist, has there been any material that you've had to say, you know what, this is not going to work, we cannot fashion this into a piece of jewellery? I can't think of anything that says the material, but I have had projects that have just not worked. So you, they've come up with an idea, we've made prototypes, we've made, almost gone into properly making something and then gone, no, you know what, this is just isn't working right. It's not how you want it. It's not working out. It's not going to be a good piece. And so we've just kind of put it on hold. And your prototypes are those in... Um, paper? Paper, yeah. Pa paper, brass, uh, silver. We often use now because it's actually not that much more expensive. Or, or, or drawings, you know, they start off with the drawing. Um, but then once you get into three dimensions you can start to see how things are going to really come out. And sometimes they work and, and sometimes they don't. And sometimes they just take a bit more work. Uh, there is a lot in the exhibition made in precious metals in gold. Do you think gold held a power for some artists like Max Ernst and Picasso? Well, I think so. But also I think that they, they a lot of them worked with the Hugos, the Francois Hugo. The silversmith. The silversmith, yes, from Valerie's, um, who Picasso knew um, at certain point in time of his life and made some plates and, and trays and then eventually um, some medallions were made. But he, because of Picasso's association with Francois Hugo, um, a lot of the other artists were attracted to Hugo and Francois Hugo traditionally used this technique called repoussé, which is where you um, kind of you bang, if I may use that word, but you, you, you beat, that's the right word, um, you beat the gold into um, a recessed area which you have, you've carved out of wood. So he would get the artists to carve the, the, um, the, the wood and then he would beat the gold into it. And he, was, he used a lot of gold and, he, and he, he was very good with the gold. And he, I think it was all 24 carat, 23 carat anyway gold. Um, and those pieces are, are, are huge. I mean, the, the, some of um, the Man Ray, the Poisson, um, are probably 15 centimetres by 15 centimetres in, in, in gold. So the, the value of the gold now nowadays is really quite a lot to forget about the artist value of it. But um, I think the, the, there's always been an attraction to gold. Gold is always the most beautiful material. It's the, it's the most favoured for making jewellery because it's the most um, malleable, but also at the same time, you know, uh, has longevity. Um, and so I, I, it makes sense from, you know, lots of, for lots of reasons as to why people use gold as, for jewellery. Um, and, and also as an artist, because it's, a, again, a good way to express yourself. Mm. And the textured surfaces of Max Ernst's pieces are rather beautiful, aren't they? Well, that, you see, is exact translation from his hand. He would have carved out that wood. Um, and then the, 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 the wood, sh the metal sheet would have been beaten into it. So it would literally 
be a sort of direct um, replica of, of, or an inverted replica of of the of the, what he had made. But there um wonderful bracelets and rings in the exhibition, Paul Bury's metallic spheres on squares and cylinders. It's very recognisable, isn't it, their work? And do you think that's the job of an artist jeweller to impose their stamp on the metal, as it were, so they, they have something that's very identifiable as their work? Personally, I, I think it, it's what makes it really good jewellery as a piece of artist's jewellery. I'm not sure everyone agrees with that. Manon, do you agree with that? Yeah, yeah, that's, what's, that's what I was going to say. I think um, my favourite pieces of jewellery in the exhibition are the pieces when you just see it and you say, well, that's Nikit Saint-Fal, that's Louis Bourgeois. And you can, you can just see uh, the, in French, we say la patte, just uh, the, the thing of the artist. I quite like to go around an exhibition and guess who they're all made by. Yeah. <laughs> when, if you've been looking at this jewellery as long as I have, you, you kind of know. But it's quite fun for anyone who hasn't been looking at this jewellery for that long but knows some of the artists to go around and, and guess. And, and, and really, I think it's not that difficult, is it? Because the hand or the pat is, um, is quite recognisable. And it's like any piece of artwork. If suddenly someone produces something completely different to the rest of their... Oeuvre, then um, is it related? Is it linked? Is, is it, maybe they're going a different direction and they're going to carry on and develop that. But maybe it's just a sort of one-off. And I, I, I like very much when, it, when it's linked to the artwork and uh, to the artist and it's very recognisable. What made you want to get involved in art history in the first place, Louisa? Gosh, um, I, well, it's a very long story, but to cut it very short, <laughs> um, I did an exhibition of artist's furniture, and then one Christmas I decided to do one of artist's jewellery. I begged, borrowed, and stole every piece I could put together, and I realised there was nothing happening in today's market, and so I started commissioning the, the contemporary artists to make jewellery, and that's when I decided I really liked it, um, because I really was, I loved getting involved with the making of the new pieces and working with the artists. Um, and, and then I sort of found myself entrenched in this whole new world of, of little, little known information because there really was, was very, very little around. And I, I've done a book recently, which is a sort of introduction to the subject, just because I want more and more people to know about, about this market, because it's, it's one of the great things I love in my job is when someone comes along and, and Manon, you'll get this as well. It's like they say, gosh, I didn't know Picasso made jewellery. And you're like, yeah, well, you know, there's a lot of artists who made jewellery and, and many, many people don't know about it. And it's, it's really interesting. It's, it's fascinating from an art point of view and from a jewellery point of view. Um, and it's also, you know, I, I just feel like not enough people know about this. And, and I find when I go to art fairs and things and I have people who are, are true art collectors or jewellery collectors as well, they are sometimes really surprised and, and it's just really kind of rewarding to be able to open up this new world to people who don't know about it. Well, it's certainly a way to have something unique. And I think part of jewellery is to set yourself apart. And if you have something unique, um, you certainly are able to do that with artist's jewellery. We were just talking about precious metals and gold and I had a feeling, Manon, in some of the pieces that there's a message about society and the price of metals in their work. I thought particularly with the 
um, Salvador Dali, the sort of anagram of his his name in gold that sort of ends in dollars. Do you think there's a message about um, the appetite of gold and the homage to sort of money in, in that piece? Yeah, it may have been. Actually, Salvador Dali used this anagram, not just in this jewel, it was an anagram, uh, it just used a lot of times uh, during his life, Avida Dollars. And yeah, it was some kind of, of joke, but... Uh, more generally than that, I would say that a lot of pieces in the second part of the exhibition uh, are related to society and not just in its um, financial component, but uh, they can be critics of the society. And I'm thinking of uh, I'm thinking about the conceptual artist uh, Sildo Mereles, a Brazilian artist, uh, which who just um, conceived a ring with, um, actually it's a gunpowder in a gun barrel and it has a lens and if you put the original ring in the sun, it explodes and it was just about how the art could be powerful and, and it was very typical of this artist. Actually, the one we exhibit in the exhibition is uh, an edition uh, by her gallerist, Luisa uh, Strina, but... Um, but the original one could, expl- could explode. That, that's exactly the point, Carol, is the, it's the concept. And that, that, that's what's so interesting about the artist's jewellery. It's like to make something that might explode in sand. It's not, that's not what a traditional jeweller would do. And so was that, um, do you think that was a message about the consumer society and, and buying things that it could explode? Uh, I think it was more about uh, what art can bring to society, which power it can have, and how much it can change things. And uh, Sildo Mireles was a very critical uh, artist with his society and with uh, the politics and with everything. And it was, to, I think, it was meant to to say that power, that art can have power, and, and we can use it to to say things. I think these are uh, tools that move me too. It's when the artists are not used to this kind of practice and just they just do one or two or, or just some. And it's I think it's the case of Janine Anthony and I think her buttons. Uh, she made um, brooches uh, that are called tender buttons and they all in cast. Um, after her nipples and they are beautiful pieces and I think it's the only jewel she did. Yeah, that's also a very good point. I think when people, when they make just one-off pieces uh, like that, it's sort of often much more poignant or they have a much better message behind them rather than rather than being too uh, what's the word, pre-dest, pre-thought out, um, pre-planned rather than they're just sort of come from the heart. Yeah, and they're not like... Uh, reductions or adaptations of other works of art they're just meant to be jewels and, and they're just they're beautiful pieces i always love seeing the um pendants pending the man ray spiral earrings created well they created in 1970 and they sort of are so long. When were they created? Yeah, actually, it dates back to the beginning of his career. And it comes from uh, a piece uh, a piece of art, a, a sculpture, uh, 
Before being uh, earrings, it was a, a scooter. And a light. A light uh, there's actually a photograph yeah. in my in my book of, of, a, of a sort of lamp that he made. Yeah, it was lampshade. It's called lampshade. And they're so long. They're sort of like long curls that could be part of somebody's hair, aren't they, that come and frame the face? There are two versions. There are the long one and a smaller one. But yeah, they're really... And they're heavy. They're really heavy. The other one I always love seeing is the Robert Indiana love, the American pop artist, and he drew inspiration from signs and billboards, and he's best known for this series of love, isn't he, with it um, in a particular typeface, and the, um, the letter forms spell out the world and are sort of slightly juxtaposed. I love seeing that love ring. And I think it's, um, he said it was um, a spiritual concept, not really about love itself. Uh, I don't know, but then he did lots of, he used that format in many other versions. But um, what was interesting was during the 60s, um, Revlon did a promotion um, and they were um, giving away those rings, which were made out of... um, inexpensive materials like very inexpensive materials um when, when you bought a lipstick and uh, so they 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 did must have done some sort of licensing with robert indiana at the time and so they became quite hugely mass produced you can still find them um i've had them through the gallery from time to time but they're not in any precious material and they're not additioned and um we've tried to get him robert indiana before he he died last year or a few years ago um, to make some more rings um, unsuccessfully at the moment. It was unsccessfully. And, um, but because that gold one that's in the exhibition is, I think, a very small edition and was sold many years ago and it's impossible to find because I would, I, like you, Carol, I would love one of those. And actually, going back to sort of Picasso being secret about his creation of jewellery during his lifetime, Robert Indiana said creating his love ring was it was a marvellous idea, but it was a terrible mistake. It became too popular. And there are people who don't like popularity. It's much better to be exclusive and remote. So maybe that's another reason why Picasso was very secret about it. And, it, you know, that maybe the, these jewels have to have the idea of intimacy to be important. Yeah. Well, if he, he if he if he gave them out free with a lipstick, then I know, he probably didn't, that's didn't probably mind what them being popular. That's did he? <laughs> what he's probably talking about. You know, the success yeah, exactly. may yeah. have been. No, too but much. rarity always creates. You know, people want things that they can't have, don't they? And if there are only a few of them, um, then of course they want them more. And that intimate way of entering someone's life—that it's something that only that person can have. Louisa, was it you who told me recently that the most expensive Picasso work ever sold at auction was was a jewel, if you compare price to size? Yes, it was the the ring that I was talking about um, that was made for Dora Maar. It was a little painting of her, a portrait, um, set in a sort of um, ready-made, bought Victorian frame set on a ring and sold at Sotheby's for £580,000. I think it was in 2017 that that happened. And if you look at it as a sort of per square millimetre or per square centimetre, it was the most expensive Picasso. So certainly sold around that time. I don't know if the records have been broken more recently, probably have. But at that time, 
No other Picasso was as expensive per square inch. And in fact, I kind of, I really wanted to buy it, but, you know, uh, uh, the estimate was a lot lower. And I was discussing it with my husband and he, and he, looked, he said to me, he said, but why don't you just buy a, a bigger one if you really want a Picasso? That, that is the most expensive way you can buy a Picasso. And I said, well, it's a jewel. It's my, it's my thing. That's what I want. And uh, he just wouldn't let me even look at it because he's just said it's just far too expensive. But the fact that it's rare and it's unique, he, he may be wrong. I'm sure he's wrong. Um, Manon, tell me the pieces that you um, liked. Is there one designer, one artist in the show whose work really appeals to you personally? Actually, I'm a huge fan of Louis Bourgeois. So the spiders just, uh, it was wonderful to see them for real and to chat with Chus Boudouès, um with whom they were made. Uh, and yeah, I think it was, it was one of the greatest emotion of, of, of the montage of the exhibition. And actually I discovered uh, Janine Anthony and his, and her tender buttons. And these, uh, I think these are my favorite pieces in all the show because they're just uh, they they just um, acquired acquired uh, with time another uh, signification because Janine Anthony uh, had a cancer a breast cancer uh, after doing them and I'm I'm just really extremely moved by these pieces. And you love jewelry. Has jewelry always been something that you've been attracted to? Actually, not. Uh, um, I'm not uh, in in this kind of, of uh, well, it's not my passion. And when I was asked to participate to this project, I wouldn't be sure. Uh, I, w- I wasn't sure that uh, it would uh, passionate me, but actually it did because it's it's a hidden but wonderful area of research and I think there is a lot more to do. I just want to reiterate what Manon was saying about the exhibition um, because for me as a, a collector and an and a avid follower of the world of artist jewellery, this exhibition was really, really interesting. It is so hard to find these um, pieces that, as, as you were saying, Picasso's hidden away and given to people and they've been stuck in people's drawers and things. And to see them come out and then to see more of them in the catalogue, which understandably couldn't get everything into the exhibition, but to then see them written about and images in the catalogue was really, really a pleasure and a treasure for me. Um, and so I, I just think you did a wonderful, amazing job getting all that information together. So I'm I, I'm glad to hear that it did warm your heart um, and you were interested in it um, once you become, uh, you know, it's a little, a little knowledge is a dangerous thing. Um, and anyway, I, I, I just, I just want, I thought it was really wonderful to see all these things together. It was a, a pleasure. And now Manon will be dreaming about that Louise Bourgeois spider and how she can get her hands on one in the future. Yeah. <laughs> hmm. Well, I might, I might be able to help you. <laughs> So, Louise, is there anyone, any artist at the moment that you feel should be making jewellery or you would like to encourage to make jewellery? Oh, gosh, well, there, I, you know, I'm already doing that, Carol. <laughs> um, but who? Who's in the future that you feel have that um, sensibility that would translate into jewellery very well? Um, yeah, I'm working already with quite a lot of artists. Um, 
Gosh, there's so many that I see all the time and think, gosh, wouldn't they make amazing jewellery? It's difficult to get their attention and making jewellery takes time. But I have got some things in the works. I've got some new pieces coming with Sue Webster and she makes amazing um, things with spiders and spider webs. I tell you who I've often been into their studio and they're, they're an artist in a different way is the milliner Philip Tracy mm. who makes hats. And I've often been in his studio and picked up little pieces, tendrils of fabric or or little patterns he's cut out and put them up. And I said, God, these should be earrings. Yeah, he, I, he would make amazing jewellery. The, the problem is you kind of have to stop somewhere. <laughs> um, there's the, I, you know, I've been quite strict in trying to only work with artists because, of course, you could go to um, milliners and you could go to fashion designers and you could go to... Um, all sorts of talented, creative studio set designers. There's just hundreds of people who could make fabulous things. Um, interior designers even, you know. Um, and like you said, you had architects. But I, I guess I've just tried to keep my stable a bit, a bit more closed just because of clarity. Um, I've got Nick Fiddy and Green making some new pieces, you know, who made the horse's head on... on, on um, um, at Marble Arch, that that's really interesting. Um, but who else do I think would be? I mean, there. Oh, whenever I go to an art fair, so I'll be at Freeze next week. I'll walk around and I'll I'll see people and I'll I'll think about it. Uh, I am talking to one or two very big um, artists who will make really interesting things on the digital side of things. One of them is particularly interested in um, three dimensional drawing through a sort of screen that you play and we would paint jewelry on your on your face and then um print it and um and then you'd be able to wear it and it would fit that's a sort of new development as a medium but it fits well with his medium because he's already a digital artist or in certain ways digital so Manuel, thank you so much for joining us and and sharing the exhibition with us i hope as many people listening can get to barcelona now yeah because it's been extended and it's been extended yeah. which is wonderful and to january till january so it gives us lots of time thank you very and luisa thank you very much for sharing your expertise in the world of artist jewelry it was fascinating thank you very much for for giving us the um the opportunity and can i just say please do go to the exhibition because it's not every day you get to see something like that we will <laughs> thank you very much Carol. thank you for listening for more information about this and other episodes of if jewels could talk please go to our website carolwalton.com slash if jewels could talk and if you liked it please share it any way you can you can find us on instagram and please subscribe to the podcast feed on any of the usual platforms where you find your podcasts where we would love a rating and a comment please join us again in two weeks for the next jeweled nugget when i'll be talking with london-based jewelry designer theo Fennell, who takes jewelry and craftsmanship very seriously but everything else to him is hilarious. And we'll be joined by two of his greatest fans and critics, the fashion designer Coco Fennell and BAFTA and Oscar winner Emerald Fennell, both his daughters, who'll tell us what they think about his career choice. 
If you watched the Oscars earlier this year, you will have seen Emerald Fennell take to the stage wearing a dazzling pair of Morganite earrings designed by her father to collect the Oscar for Best Original Screenplay for Promising Young Woman. What's happened to those earrings? Does she still have them? Or does he? Listen in and you'll find out. Goodbye. If Jules Could Talk with Carol Walton is produced by Natasha Cowan, music and editing by Tim Thornton, graphics by Scott Bentley, illustration by Geordie Labanda, and you can find me on Instagram at Carol Walton. <laughs>